are in the book of Zechariah. And I've entitled this, Jesus is Coming. Because when we look at Zechariah, remember last week I talked about when we were over in the book of Haggai, right? That Haggai and Zechariah both preach at the same time, 520 B.C. They are preaching to the Jews who have come out of, uh, they've been in captivity for 70 years. They are sent with Ezra to, to rebuild the temple by King Cyrus. 60,000 of them respond. And they get there and they build for about a year and then they get discouraged. The people come, they, they file lawsuits against them. They even bring the police to shut them down. It's not a good time for them. They get discouraged and they stop. And for 15 years, they quit building on the temple. And then Haggai is sent and Zechariah is sent to encourage the people. And last week we looked at Haggai, how God affirmed them that they were not alone, that they were not to be afraid, they were not to worry about the world. And Zechariah now comes along and he's preaching generally the same message. Now Zechariah is the longest book of the Minor Prophets. And uh, so, as a matter of fact, the interesting part is that it's longer than Daniel, which is considered a major prophet. Maybe we got hoodwinked a little bit on that one. Nah, but he's, he is, or Zachariah is going to preach to us some amazing things. And if you, if you remember our timetable, so here is, is Haggai, and then here's Zachariah. And then next week we're going to wind up with Malachi, who's the last minor prophet to write. To write, and all of these wrote what they call their their post-exile prophets. They're writing in a time when the people of Israel have been exiled. And so as we come to Zechariah, his name means God remembers. Isn't that awesome? God remembers. And he comes to the, to the people of Israel and he says, God is remembering you. And so as we set the table here for Zechariah, uh, once again, now this is the longest book and I'm only going to preach on it this Sunday, just like we've done with each one of the others. Someday I'm going to come back and I'm going to pick the whole thing up because it is an amazing book. But this morning, I'm going to focus on the future. And as a matter of fact, everything that Zechariah writes is in the future. But some of it, as we read it today, is in the past. And you know, the nice thing about that is we can look back and say, wow, he was right. So as we look at this this morning, I want you to remember, he is writing 550 years before Jesus. 550. And I want you to watch how exactly perfect he prophesies as to what is coming. So let's 
turn to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to read the first six verses and just talk about this for just a moment. The first six verses of Zechariah. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berkiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord is very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to do to us, in accordance to our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Zechariah, God remembers. He, it, interesting few things about Zechariah is he is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. As, as the, especially in the, in the uh, as Jesus speaks in the Gospels, he keeps going back to Zechariah. Because Zechariah is going to say, hey guys, Wake up. Now, the first eight chapters are eight visions that Zechariah sees, and they apply to the encouragement that he's giving to the Jews at that time. Remember, they've stopped building. They're discouraged. And as we saw in Ezra last week, he went back and, and, and they said it was because of of Haggai and Zechariah, not only did they prophesy, but they worked alongside us. Now the interesting piece with with Zechariah is that if you go to um, Nehemiah chapter 12, you'll see that Zechariah was not just a prophet, he was a priest. He was in the line of the priesthood. And so here you have all of these priests who are their whole obligation is to bring the sacrifice back. To begin to sacrifice not on the hilltops, not anyplace else, but bring the sacrifice back to the temple. And Zechariah is the rallying cry as he reveals to them these eight different visions. And so if you read one through eight, you'll see just some wonderful things that he, he one of the, I, and I'll just share one real quick. The very first one is, the, is that we have, he says, we have a, a patrol. We have a mounted posse that is looking over. They're patrolling the earth to take care of you. Now, who is that mounted patrol? That's our angels. He said, I've sent angels to watch over you and to take care of you. We talked a little bit about that last week. You know, that, that when we are gathered together, where are our guardian angels hanging out? <laughs> we've, got, we've got this amazing mass 
of angels that are doing heavenly bidding right now as we sit here because all of our angels are right here with us. Amen. Well, he, goes, he gives eight of these. But then he looks to the future, and I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Okay, we're, gonna, we're not going to go into detail about these eight visions. They're wonderful. They're primarily geared towards the, the people that are there at that time. But remember, anytime we have a prophet that's prophesying, quite often it is near and far. Well, when we get to chapter 9, he shifts into high gear. <laughs> he says, everything I'm going to tell you now is in the future. This stuff, folks, is exciting because he's telling us Jesus is coming. Not just once, but twice. So turn to 9, chapter 9, and we're just going to read one verse there because this, and we're going to look at this, and then we're going to look at what the New Testament says about this. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. 520 B.C. Now turn to Matthew. Well, first, let me say, Jesus came first as a humble king. A humble king, riding on a donkey. Now turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, as we look at a story that we generally save for Easter. Matter of fact, we usually preach on this on Palm Sunday. Matthew chapter 21. And they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And they, this took place to fulfill that which is spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, the king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and they sat down on the coat, and he sat down on the coats, and most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road, and the crowd going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now we go back to Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice so greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. 550 years before he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah said exactly what would happen. Not only did he say that, but he said, you, they will shout before you in triumph. What were they shouting? Hosanna! Do you remember last Easter? What, did, what does Hosanna mean? Save us, please! Oh, God, save us! Now, they were asking for him to be a savior from who? The Romans. The Romans had come. The Romans had come. But I want you to look at how specific he is in, in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, he is just and endowed with salvation. Jesus didn't come to liberate the Jews from the Romans. If he had done that, how would he have ridden in on that Palm Sunday on a war horse? He would have come in and he would have rallied the people and said, let's go, pick up arms, grab your swords. But no, he came riding in not just on a donkey, but on the foal of a donkey. A young, whore, a young donkey that probably had never been ridden. You ever tried that? I tried riding a donkey once. Didn't work out so well. I, I landed in a big pile. Well, anyway. <laughs> he came humbly riding in. And a matter of fact... We're going to see him during that same time standing overlooking Jerusalem as he's walking back in shortly before his crucifixion. He says, he's in tears. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, how I would take you under my wing. But they didn't want that. They just wanted a king who would kick the Romans out. And Jesus said, no, I've come that you can kick Satan out. I've come to forgive you of sin. I've come to go to the cross to give you a remedy for sin. Amen? That's what I need. I don't need to be free from, from oppression. I need to be free from sin. I need to have the salvation that God brings to change my life. That's the important piece that they totally missed. Now, who should have known what Zechariah wrote? The scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. When they saw him riding in on a donkey, something should have clicked in their mind. Zechariah wrote that. That the king would come in on a foal of a donkey. They should have figured that out. I kind of feel sorry for the, for the disciples in all this. Do you realize what he was asking them to do? 
it would be like me going and saying, Hunter, I want you to go steal a car for me <laughs> so that we can go, do right? You just don't go steal somebody's donkey. But the disciples said, okay. And it turned out exactly what, because what did Jesus know? Jesus knew, I'm just fulfilling a prophecy. I am giving these people notice that what Zechariah said, I'm doing. If you don't believe me, go back and read Zechariah, Pharisees. He wrote it 550 years ago. I'm simply fulfilling the prophecy. Well, let's look at the next prophecy in Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. And he said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. And if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces, or the 30 shekels of silver, and I threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. The shepherd. Isn't that the way Jesus is portrayed for us? He's portrayed here. He says, I'm the shepherd. I'm the shepherd that's come to, to lead you, but you've rejected me. And so he's finally in this, in Zechariah, he's saying, I'm done. Pay me what's due me. Now, the prophecy goes to what? It goes to Judas. That Jesus would be betrayed for a price. An exact price. 30 shekels of silver. Not gold. Not anything else. 30 shekels of silver. Go now to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 tells us this. Verses 1 through 10. Now that morning came and all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And then, and then when Judas, who had been betrayed him, saying that he had, he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver. Ooh, how many? 30 pieces of what? Silver, 30 pieces of silver, saying, I have sinned by betraying an innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since this is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and the money brought, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For, the reason, for that reason, 
That field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them to the, for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Wow. 550 years before, what did he say? 30 pieces of silver. That's your wages. Now, why is that important? Exodus 21:32 tells us why. If an ox gores a male or a female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. 30 shekels of silver was the price of a slave. Not a live slave, a dead slave. No more use. 30 pieces of silver. Coming back to Zechariah, when he says, give me my wages. He's the chief shepherd. Pay me what I'm due. And they pay him what? It was a slap in the face. It was an insult to give him 30 pieces of silver. You're not worth anything more than a dead slave, is what they're saying to him. And, and look, at, look at the way Jesus, or look at the way God responds in, in 11, 13. The, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price, price at which I was valued by them. Oh, you think, you're, you think you're getting one over? No. He said, throw it to the potter. Once again, we look at how specific, not only is it 30 pieces of silver that he brings, that he sells them for, but what does he tell them to do with it? Throw it to the potter. In Matthew, what does it tell us? It tells us when they brought it, when, when he brings it back, and notice it didn't say that Judas repented. It said he had remorse. He was, I'm sorry that I did that. He didn't deserve that. I should have been a better person. But he, he takes it back. They don't want it. Now, where did he get the money? From them from the temple treasury. And they said, oh, well, we can't, we can't put that back in the, why not? You just got it from there. You could pay for the betrayal, but you won't take it back. And so the big self-righteous that they are, they say, oh, we've got to do something charitable with it. And it's worth so little that they buy the potter's field. Now, why is that? What is the potter's field? So the potters would go out and they would find a, a section of land and they would dig every bit of clay and dirt out of it until you couldn't grow anything. It was worthless. That's the potter's field. That's what they bought with the money that they had given to betray Jesus. And so they buy the potter's field just as Zechariah had said. Look what he says. 
But I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter, where? In the house of the Lord. Where did Judas throw his 30 shekels of silver? Right into the temple, right where the Pharisees and the rulers were sitting. Do you understand the magnitude? Now we're looking back on this event, right? We look back. Well, he has one more prophecy that we're going to look back on. And that's in Zechariah chapter 12, 11 and 12, and then verse 13, verse 6. Zechariah 11, 12, 11 and 12. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadarimon in the plains of Megiddo. A land will mourn every family by itself, a family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by himself and their wives by themselves. The house of Levi by itself and the wives by themselves and the families of Shimron, the Shimonites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families they remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. I should have started in verse 10, (laughs) sorry. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now look down at verse six of chapter 13. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus was crucified by the Romans. He was not stoned by the Jews. This is important, people. If we were to go to the, to the Old Testament, if somebody blasphemed against God, they were immediately to be taken out and stoned. That was the worst uh, punishment you could give anyone, is to go out and be stoned. And we saw a, an example of that with Stephen. When Stephen was standing before the Sanhedrin and giving his defense, he, they, they said, you have blasphemed against God, and immediately what did they do? They took him outside the, the walls, and they stoned him. That's what should have happened to Jesus. But Zechariah said, what? They will look upon him whom they pierced. For Zechariah's prophecy to come true, he had to be Pierce, some way. 
I mean, I want you to understand, 550 years before Jesus was crucified, crucifixion had not even been used in the way he was crucified. And yet he said, he will be pierced. And then we come down in verse, in chapter 6, or chapter 13, verse 6, and it says, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. We'll get to the, that piece in a minute, but it says, what is this between your arms? Now, the word, the Hebrew word that's used here means anything from your hand to your shoulder. From your hand to your shoulder. So this could be one of two things. Now some of you probably, if, depending on what translation you have, it may say hands. Others you may have, it may say body or it may say his back. So we have two possible meanings here. One is the nails that went through his hands. And, and some people say, well, well, you know, if you look at the, there's no way his hands, if you put it in the palm, would help. And most people, if you look at, at what, at the way the Romans did uh, crucifixion, they would drive the nails through the wrist so that it would all hold. It wouldn't tear apart like it would if you put it in his hand, in his wrist. Could have meant that, or we are, we are healed by his what? His stripes. We are healed by the fact that he was scourged. What did the Romans do? They took off his robe. They laid him over a rock. They, they, they put, tied him down. And they began to, to apply the scourge. And it was designed to have either metal or glass or pieces of bone in it. And as those little pieces would come, they would grab into the skin and then they would jerk it back across his back and it would lay it wide open, fillet him. And when they did that, it would generally tear all the muscles all the way across. It would have been up over his shoulders. It would have been down into his rib cage across his back. And what did Zechariah prophesy? 550 years before what are these wounds between your arms? Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In John chapter 20, we, we remember our friend Thomas. Remember him? The apostle Thomas. He was not there the first time Jesus came back in his What? his glorified body. Remember, he had resurrected. He told Mary, don't, don't grab on to me. I have yet to go to the Father, but I will come back and I'll talk with everybody. He went to the Father, got his glorified body. He came back. And then when he talks to Thomas, Thomas in a second time, when he comes back to the house, he says, and then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hands and put it into my side. Do you not, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Jesus' glorified body, he carries what? The scars of the crucifixion. Why does he do that? 
to remind us of the price that he's paid. What did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to build that place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. There's a song that, I, that uh, was sung by the Cathedral Quartet many years ago. And the chorus goes like this. I am headed for a home built by God alone. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, I am. And the only thing there that's been made by man are the scars in the hands of Jesus. Amen. It is by his stripes we are healed. It is the fact when we come to communion in a few minutes. It's the fact that he was crucified on a cross. That he gave himself willingly. And when we get to heaven. You know the, the verse that says there are no tears in heaven. That's not correct. Jesus said I will wipe away all tears. I think when we get to heaven. We're going to be so thankful for what he's done for us. That we're going to fall at his feet and we're going to weep. Because it was our sin that placed him there. And and he says in verse 6, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In John chapter 15, as he was departing from his disciples, he said this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for who? His friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. Wow. I received my stripes in the house of my friends. It was our sin that laid him on the cross. We need to acknowledge that. Well, we have one more, one more prophecy, and it's future. It's in our future. It was way in the future of Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravaged, half of the city exiled, and the rest of the people will be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley. And so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half will move towards the south. And you will flee by the valley to my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to the zeal. Yes, 
You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And in that day there will be no light, and the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that in evening time there will be a light. And in that day the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. And it will be summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and the day of the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Amen? What's he talking about? He's talking about the second coming of Christ the second coming when he comes that second time his feet will hit the ground on the Mount of Olives and it'll split open and then there's going to be a great battle now I want you to understand the rapture of the church is different from the second coming the rapture takes place in the clouds When Jesus touches down the second time, it will be the battle of Armageddon. The rapture of the church is explained in Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Let me read it to you very quickly. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest of those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Where? In the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. That's the rapture. It happens in the air. It's when we're caught up to be with Jesus. For how long? Forever and ever. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, the angels came down and said to them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who, you have been, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as we have watched him go into heaven. And if you look at the rest of that pa- passage, he is standing where? On the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah said one day, one day Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to go just like he left. And he's, when his feet hit the mountain of, Mount of Olives, it's going to split in two. And this time when he comes back, guess how he's coming? He's coming not as a meek and mild king on a donkey. He's coming as a warrior. He's on a white, 
He's, he's on a white horse riding back. And who comes back with him? We do. We do. Did you catch that in Zechariah? That's what he tells us. He tells them in verse 5, And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. If you haven't taken your writing lessons, you need to start. Because when you get to heaven, you're going to be riding a horse. My wife and I, we like to watch this show called Heartland. It's a thing. It's an old show. And, and just, this last, just this last week, they had a little reference about, are there going to be horses in heaven? Absolutely. Because we're going, to watch, we're going to ride on them when we come back. Zechariah tells us that he's going to stand on that mountain. In Revelation chapter 19, it tells us what that's going to look like. In chapter 16 of Revelation, it tells us about a battle, a place called Armageddon, Armageddon. We call it what? Armageddon. That's what we call it. Armageddon. What does Armageddon mean? It means the hill of Megiddo. The hill of Megiddo stands overlooking the Jezreel Valley that runs right up into Jerusalem. Now, did you catch what, what Zachariah is saying? There's going to come a point when Jesus touches down that that mountain's going to split. And he tells, the, he tells the people that are remaining in Jerusalem to do what? Run. Run up in through the valley. Because who's coming from the other side? The army's coming with Jesus at the lead. Now, here is the description of that battle. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has the name on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, that's us, <laughs> get ready guys. His armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And his tread, he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun and crying out with a loud voice. And all the birds will fly in from mid-heaven. Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Wow. Satan, the Antichrist, 
the false prophet, all of them, they will assemble the armies of the world and they will come against Jerusalem for one mighty battle and Jesus will be there. No longer is he the meek and mild king who came on a donkey, as Zechariah said. He is now the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's going to fight a battle. None of us, we will be his army, but we will not raise one hand because he will speak and all of them will be slaughtered. It says that they will ride through, that the the blood will be to the the horse's bridle. God says, I've had enough. And he says, I'm done. Zechariah, 550 years before Jesus would ride into the first time. Over 2,500 years since then, he's saying, get ready. Jesus is coming. When Jesus came the first time, It says he rode in on a humble donkey. Well, you know, we're getting close to Christmas time, aren't we? When he really came down to earth, right? He came as a little baby. Laid him in a manger. We sing all of these songs about the sweet little Jesus that laid in a manger. But he said, you know what? I'm coming here with the greatest gift of all because I've come to be the only sacrifice, the only sacrifice for sin. The only way you will ever get to the Father is through me. To be born of a virgin, to be raised in a sinless life, and then to be crucified on a cross so that we could have eternal life. Amen.